Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm Harmony and I'm here with my co-host, Russell Kay. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> How are you doing, Russell? Good, good. I'm so excited. Uh, a very uh, old friend of mine uh, has done us a tremendous honor by agreeing to come on the show, and I wanted to introduce him to everyone. Yeah, go for it. Uh, Gopi, how are you? Russell, Harmony, lovely to be here. I am doing fantastic. I'm honored to be on the show. Oh, fantastic. I have a, a short uh, intro I wanted to read. Um, first, I should ask you, I'm, I'm about to, to butcher your last name. I think it's Kalayil. Kalayil, yes. Ah, okay, good. Kalayil. <laughs> so, uh, Mr. Kalayil is Chief Evangelist, Digital Transformation and Strategy at Google, Board Advisor to the CEO for Plato, TaskHuman, Jiffy.ai, and author of The Happy Human, Being Real in an Artificially Intelligent World. Uh, our friend Gopi is an avid yoga practitioner, a triathlete, um, I think he still is. I'm not sure after his recent knee injury. Uh, public speaker, a global traveler, and a Burning Man devotee where he did, in fact, break his knee. He, is, <laughs> he has spoken at TEDx, Renaissance Weekend, the World Peace Festival, and Wisdom 2.0. Uh, he hosts a TV program on cable and YouTube called Changemakers. Gopi, I wanted to talk about all of these things with you if you have a moment. Russell, thank you. I'm happy to talk about all of these things. And uh, uh, I applaud the amazing work that both of you are doing on this world in the context of yoga and spirituality and mindfulness. Thank you. What we like to say is that um, you know, people have a you know, crisis in their life, and then at some point they found a uh, they found they found harmony. Uh, they found a, a resolution to their crisis, and so does the show Finding Harmony. It seems like everyone has these crises that they have to find resolution to. Is that what happened to you, literally, Russell, in your life? You had a crisis and you found harmony. I would agree <laughs> on many on many different fronts, literally and figuratively. That's exactly what happened <laughs> to me. I, I agree with that. I actually remember. Um, meeting you i don't know if you if you do um but i was in a parking garage in san francisco at a yoga journal conference about 10 years about 10 years ago and i remember i took one look at you and a very tall french lady uh, i think her name was albert uh, yeah 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 uh and um and i said to myself I think I'm about to get to know this guy. I just had a feeling. And I was like, hmm, yeah, his energy feels like it's coming right towards me. And sure enough, we had dinner together that night. <laughs> Do you remember? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, along with uh, Tim Ryan. Yeah, Representative Tim Ryan, the, the yeah. mindful congressman. We the, the we had dinner. I think Carrie Kelly was there. I Sean think Korn. Sean, Sean Korn. Korn was there. Um, that's sort of funny. I think being, I sort of, what is that when you see someone across the room and you just know that we're going to know each other for years and years? What is that? Yeah, it's like an energetic connection and an intuition that tells you that you're able to read people, read energies and, uh, and, and 
and feel like there is something here that draws me to this person. Yeah, it certainly did. You you glowed, and you had this kind of um, uh, shamanic quality to you. And I thought, oh, he's interesting. <laughs> Goodness, and um, yeah, you you definitely you've you've always been so friendly and generous with me. And I and I'm I was very grateful that you've you've offered us your time on so many different occasions. For example. Um, you volunteered to take uh, our our Ashtanga yoga teacher, Sharat Joyce. You took him on a whole tour of the Google campus a couple times, which was very generous of you. I, I have this very clear memory of being on the Google campus the first time, and you took us on this incredible Google staircase, which I, I wonder if you could describe for us. Um, I remember at the time you told us that the number one Google search um, uh, uh, th what's the thing that comes up when you when you Google the number one the number one thing that came search. up on Google yeah. on search a search result. Thank you. Uh, after Brexit, was what is the European Union? That was such a phenomenal way to start the conversation. What was that stairwell that we were all on? It's one of the exhibits that we have on the Google campus where there is a staircase that actually leads from one floor to another. But on the staircase, we scroll the top search terms on the, <laughs> on the base of every step. So <laughs> as you are climbing the stairs, you can look at the top 15 or 20 searches that are happening currently. Wow. Um, and it's a way to peer into human consciousness because yeah. collectively it gives you a, a, a feeling of what is humanity most interested in at this point in time. Yeah. It was amazing because I, I had lived for, for several years in, in England and I was struck by it. And I thought, my God, they really don't know what they've just done. They have no idea. <laughs> and it struck me as a kind of... Um, indicator of the the age of misinformation that we were about to to enter is that people were really kind of taking advantage of these sorts of things and and uh irony the and the irony of that of not knowing what you're voting for that we have so much information and yet so little, little understanding accuracy or understanding of it i don't know you must come across this all the time though like working in google this idea of like collective consciousness, you must be able to kind of see or predict or, or have a feeling of where things are going. Yeah, in a way you can uh, get a good sense of what human beings are looking for, what they're most interested in. And it's data that you know, at a certain level you can also access. If you go to Google search trends, you can see uh -huh. what is being searched for in different parts of the world, in different languages and uh, you can look at it by categories, et cetera. And it's a great way by which we all get an understanding of what yeah. humanity is most interested in at this point in time. Oh, that's so cool. I didn't know you could do that. What a, what a tip. That's very meta. Like, enter the metaverse of Google. But, <laughs> figuratively, yes, but literally they're different companies. Yeah, I know. <laughs> It's no, very cool, though. Like googling, googling Google. <laughs> it's a publicly available tool called Search Trends. Search Trends. Cool. Okay. That's amazing. Oh. 
I, you know, I think at the time also we we were able to sit together. Um, I think Sharat was there and Anne Finstead and and you and I, and I, I it might have been Anne that organized um, working with you. I, I I don't remember. I, I don't know if it was it was me or, that called you or, or Anne, but I was really struck by the story that you told us um, about your life and how you you came to be here. And I didn't know if you could take a moment to help to share with us how you how you came to be where you were. I think I think you took your your MBA in in Kolkata, uh, but that's not where you're from. You're maybe you're from Tamil Nadu in Tiruchirappalli. Um, what is it? Tiruchirappalli. Yeah, Chirupali. Is that where you're from? No, not from there, but both have both places of context. And yeah, it is true. I was born and raised in India. I'm originally from the southern Indian state of Kerala, which is where my family is from. Oh, the uh, the context of Tiruchirappalli is that's why I did my undergrad degree in engineering in Kolkata because I went and did my one of my MBAs. I have two MBAs, so I did one MBA at the Indian Institute of Management in Kolkata, and then eventually, I, when I ended up in the US, I went back to get business degree from the Water School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I can talk about that aspect of my life. Yeah. Chapter one. It's a big long story. And uh, uh, well, let me give you a, a context to answer the question. This is a kind of a a bananas question that we ask all our guests. You know, what sort of um, spiritual background or did your parents have? And of course, that seems like a, a bizarre thing to ask someone in India, where it's like for our experiences as Westerners coming to, and everything is has a spiritual aspect. Everything has a spiritual interest. Everything sort of radiates um, consciousness, whereas things are so so much more non secular here as to be, you know, you kind of have to ask someone if they do have. A spiritual interest because you don't take it for granted here yeah yeah um so it is true that in india you can generally regard it as a very spiritual country and there is some element of spiritual or sacred practices that seem to radiate across the entire culture and life and uh, daily expression uh, so in, the, in that context my family's uh, traditional Indian Hindu family, and therefore there are many things built into their rhythm and uh, practices of life on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And you get exposed to a lot of aspects, which, you know, given the training you had, Russell and uh, Harmony, you would say fits into the domain of bhakti yoga practices. Mm -hmm. yeah. Devotional. Devotional, temple worship, chanting, etc. Uh, so there was that exposure. But my own, and given where I was growing up, there was a lot of access to many of these tools and lectures and workshops and teachers, etc. But in a very traditional orthodox kind of style. But I was drawn to some of it on my own and uh, got exposed to it early on. And I don't know why they drew me, but they drew me like in my teenage years when mm -hmm. it was not that cool among my friends to go <laughs> on these pursuits. And now it's like hip and trendy. We have yeah. yoga teachers around the world like Harmony, so it's interesting that. <laughs> completely different vibe uh, but back then uh, so early on in my teenage years when I was in high school I already found my guru and uh, was on to a certain spiritual path I'd learned how to meditate I'd started my meditation practice I also went and became a yoga teacher I was the youngest in my class 
oh. all of this before you know it had become trendy and popular around the world. So something drew me there. In Indian culture, we'd call it because of some kind of samskara. So yeah. the seeds of it were already sown even at the time of your birth. Mm-hmm. And did you find that your you, maybe your parents were averse to these choices and they were sort of pushing you towards engineering, like you should leave these things alone? <laughs> <laughs> There's always that dichotomy that you see among modern Indian parents and when they... They want the kids to pursue a very successful secular professional career and go to mm-hmm. engineering school and med school. Mm-hmm. And they appreciate and revere these other teachers who are in these traditions. But when their own children want to sit on inkling, they get a little anxious. And yeah. they, they have reverence for like a Swami, as long as it's not your child who wants to go to <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Well, what did that look like? Say, when, when you, you found your spiritual path and you found your, your guru. How did you find your guru? Yeah. And was that on a daily basis you were going to visit? or? Well, uh, this saying in the Indian culture that you don't find your guru, the guru finds you. Yeah. And that's probably what happened to me also. I don't think I found my guru. The guru found me. It was a uh, woman guru. Her name is Ramad Devi. And... Uh, uh, my parents had moved to this town, Trivandrum, or Tiruvannantapuram, as it is called now, or as it is always called, but that is the uh, traditional name in Malayalam. And uh, next to where my parents stayed was a spiritual center that she had established where people would go for their practices, including daily meditation, etc. And I would just walk past it without paying any attention to it. But one day I was drawn to walk, and something drew me to just step inside. And I liked the atmosphere and I sat through their evening. During sunset time, they have a practice or a ceremony that they do collectively, Deeparadhana. So I sat through it and felt very calm and very peaceful. Something attracted me to it. So I went the next day and the next day and I just kept going there regularly. And then eventually I met the teacher who had established that center. She lived in a different town in Mangalore, in Karnataka. Mm. But I got an opportunity to meet with her and... Uh, understand the philosophy and their teachings and mm-hmm. was drawn to it and that's how the journey began mm. wow. eventually being initiated into that path and was that very difficult then to you might have felt like that was a, a, a passion and a path for you that you had to steer away from to go study engineering and then then business up north no it was not difficult in a way still all melded with different aspects of my life. This is one aspect of my life, and it did not conflict with other things that I wanted to do in life. But all anything, uh-huh. I would say, only helped me. Uh-huh. And around that time, Russell also, shortly, a few months after that, after I was sort of formally initiated, I also signed up for a yoga teacher's training course at the Shivananda Ashram oh, in, uh, in Kerala. In Dam in Kerala. So that exposed me to the formal practice of, I would say, the... Uh, all four paths of yoga in a more formal sense, mm-hmm. but the yoga, karma yoga, jnana yoga, and raja yoga, and specifically also helped me train to become a yoga asana teacher. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting because those choices for us, you could argue, uh, destroyed all other paths for, in our life. When we went the yoga path, it's sort of everything else had to kind of go to the wayside because it's, you know, we, we devoted 
everything to that to that path and all of our our uh, it was it wasn't quite as balanced as what you're describing yeah i think it's something that maybe a lot of westerners kind of struggle with is they discover yoga and then it it feels like it's such an opening or such a beautiful kind of practice or transformational experience that almost they start to um kind of like move away from all the things in their culture because of the the connection or the attraction to yoga which in some ways I think is quite natural when you get really involved with something or you really love something you want to immerse yourself in it but it sounds like you were able to kind of immerse yourself in it but also still like maintain a focus on your career your studies your like growing in secular life as well and do you think that's because of it being a bit more immersed in the Indian culture that you didn't feel like you had to necessarily like cut yourself. Yeah. Off. Cut yourself off from the culture, but that it was like just more integrated as a way of life. Well, growing up and the way it was melded in, it felt it was all very integrated into your yeah. holistic life. It didn't seem like a separate thing. It definitely didn't feel mutually exclusive. Mm. It felt actually highly integrative. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a tiny example of that is in the way that at least these aspects of coexist in Indian culture, and I didn't have the appreciation of it till I stepped outside of it. And now I can look and and see it. So I would notice that in the town where I went to high school, um, on the way from my home to the high school alone, there were multiple centers of I would, let's call it, for lack of a better word, honoring the sacred. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and already open every week. They just don't wait for like Fridays or Sundays for it to open. It's like every day of the week. Yeah. And five in the morning, you know, mm. lights are on, the oil lamps are lit. And people would stop. You could see them there on the, they, you know, they're on their way to work or school. They'll stop and, and maybe offer a little prayer or worship or something like that, yeah. just on the way to work. And evening also, they might do that on the way back from work. And you get into the, a taxi to go somewhere and the taxi may drive crazy, but the taxi's insurance policy seemed to be an entire shrine that sits on the dashboard. <laughs> the right. flower, and there's incense stick burning on the dashboard. Yeah, 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 a little yeah, banana yeah. offering yeah, to one of yeah. the deities. And you know, you, you grow up with it. You don't think anything odd about it. But now when you look back, basically the taxi driver was carrying an entire uh, uh, temple. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, moving, moving so temple. Uh, it is not uncommon for me to just walk by and I would look at hotels and textile shops and it would say like uh, Lakshmi textiles or Ganesh yeah. cookies yeah. or, uh, or Muruga vegetarian restaurant. Yeah. But basically all of the businesses are named after the names of the divine as well. And, yeah. and uh, you know, There'd be buses flying on this roads and the bus would have a picture of Hanuman on the side of the bus. And yeah. So yeah. it's all just melded into the chaos of everyday life. And therefore, you don't think of it as like a separate thing. You have to kind of find your way to. It is, yeah. It's just there. And you adopt and accept as much of it as you want to. Yeah. I, it reminds me, uh, when I'm driving and... Where I'm, when I'm being driven in India, I often want to uh, 
to mention to the driver, you know, this is Islamic wisdom, you know, trust in Allah, but tie your camel. (laughs) (laughs) You can have all of the incense burning, man, but like really maybe drive more carefully. (laughs) It's beautiful though. You bring up something that is, I think, probably my most favorite aspect of Indian culture and being in India is that that enmeshment of of the mundane world with the divine world and having these constant reminders like everywhere you go all the time that there's something beyond the human mind the human body the human experience that we're having that there's something much greater and and um and we're all a part of it but it's also like beyond any one human or any one thing and i just i love that about um the culture of india and being in india um specifically because it's it's every in every part of india that is i think the unifying kind of element is that um that integration integration of the divine and the mundane all together it's wonderful I, it reminds me, um, my my cousins in uh, in Illinois. I think they also experience a similar kind of integration that you're describing, where they have their spiritual lives. Uh, they're Pentecostal Christians, and so they go to church every day when their work is done. Oh. And they're very quite certain. Why, why would you watch uh, non secular television when you could go to church and be entertained and fulfilled? by union with, you know, Jesus. Yeah. And so there's like, you re- it's a really serious question, you know? And so they, I think they would very much enjoy seeing like the face of Jesus on every merchant shop and <laughs> I don't know government <laughs> building. And I think they would like to see that. And so it, I, I wonder about your, ex, your, your experience of of coming to the United States and coming to UPenn, because I think about what a conflict we're in in this country between the secular and the non-secular and people who have spiritual interests, maybe because of a religious vacuum, and then people who have very serious orthodox interests who are, and these groups of people um, are at war with each other in this country. But I, I'm. I still. I want to get back to, to your experience, and if that was your experience when you when you came here, and what was your impression of, of America, Philadelphia, let's say, <laughs> <laughs> when you came here. Yeah, I didn't go up to Philadelphia first. Actually, I was living in Hong Kong before that. Wow. Oh goodness! I moved to Hong Kong for work, yeah. and from Hong Kong, I moved to San Francisco to work for a few years. From San Francisco, I moved to New York to work mm-hmm. on. Uh, Wall Street, and, uh, and then uh, from the financial services sector, moved from there to North Carolina, and then I applied to business school and I ended up in Philadelphia. So Philadelphia uh, was not my first stop, just like a year three or four of living in America that I ended up. But Russell, you have to understand that uh, when you grow up in India, you're growing up in this very multicultural, plural society. And uh, there are all sorts of belief systems and practices that coexist. People who believe in something, people who don't believe in, people who take a very interesting uh, intellectual approach to their practices, people who have very 
rigid orthodox practices, they all coexist. So you grew up in a culture where there is an opportunity for things to coexist. So when I came here, I only saw diversity. I didn't see, I didn't perceive that much as things being at war or at conflict. Uh -huh. There are, it's a large country. It's integrated in many different kinds of, in fact, that's one of the strengths of the country that it allows for people with different groups, with different uh, practices and belief systems to all kind of operate in the, the freedom that they want. Mm. So that's what uh, struck me. Wow. And I was impressed by that. Because at the end of the day, there is enormous amount of freedom uh, in these contexts. Mm. Goodness. Yeah, I love that. Gosh, yeah, it's, a, it's such a fresh experience of, of our of our current reality that I um I, f I feel that um I'm I'm I, I have a sense of a uh, of foreboding about uh, you know uh. <laughs> it exemplifies that quote that you don't see the world as it is you see the world as you are. Mm. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for that. Yeah. Kopi's yeah. <laughs> obviously very much enlightened <laughs> and <laughs> seeing the world through the eyes of union and integration. <laughs> you, I'm not sure. Oh goodness. <laughs> and so, did you did you find that you were also able to maintain your your spiritual practices as as you were? Um, moving from Hong Kong to San Francisco to New York to North Carolina to Philadelphia? Uh, use the word, did you find yourself able to uh, maintain your practices? I would, you know, I think the more appropriate term to use is I struggle to keep up with it because it's not easy as you go through these different contexts of life to be able to hold on to all of these things with uh, integrity. But I tried to maintain hold on to some semblance of it or at least there was a daily reminder of it that i should mm -hmm. and some days were better than the others some periods were better than the others mm -hmm. uh, i would say the earlier parts the engagement or daily awareness and practices were minimal in later years it became much more deeper for a variety of reasons first is uh, I thought I felt like there was a general acceptance of many of these practices that you could see in the world, especially in the USS. More people became aware of practices like yoga or kirtan, etc. Mm -hmm. And uh, second, in my own life, I started understanding the uh, need and importance of keeping up with these practices. Mm. What was it that like? made you see that that made you feel like oh i really need to make sure i'm doing this type of self-care spiritual practice was it stress or burnout or anything like that burning man no, it was <laughs> <laughs> burning man <laughs> burning man uh no harmony it is more of a light bulb going off in my head uh, which eventually you know this is what led to the writing of my first book called The Internet to the Internet. Oh, uh, I love it. Yeah. And you can even see the font choices that I used. Yeah. The digital computer font and yeah. internet with the Devanagari Sanskrit yeah. language. Yeah, it's like Sanskrit. It's beautiful. Yeah. So it came with this realization and uh, that it really happened 
after I had a conversation with Sadhguru, who was visiting Google one day, and uh, after he had spoken in Davos, one of the execs at Google invited him to drop in the next time he was in the Bay Area. And I was asked to join that meeting and have lunch with him. And while I was having lunch with him, there's something that he said that I thought was very profound, and it really left a memorable impression in my in my mind. And that was, uh, he said, this asset that we have, this tool that we have, is the most important resource in your life. And if you ask somebody, what is the most important resource that you have, they may talk about different things like house and money and well mm. possessions but he said this inner technology is the most important by inner technology i interpreted it as first of all our body the physical container mm-hmm. our brain the cognitive function with which we perceive information and the world uh, our emotions our responses to things and events that happen around us and our overall energy that gives us that drive, that motivation, that creativity. So collectively, this is what, and this is what defines you as Harmony, and this is what defines you as Russell. So this is the most important resource, and that's because all of our life experience gets filtered by this layer. Mm. There is no life experience outside of this container of our body and mind and awareness and emotions. Meaning, if you had lunch today, Harmony, that lunch is currently being digested and becoming parts of your body. It's becoming energy and it's becoming your blood. It's becoming your cells. Uh, As you're listening to this conversation, you are processing my words. You're processing my tonality. You're processing my gestures and interpreting it. It's forming little impressions in your brain and uh, it's giving you some context and understanding. If you take one of my CDs and have three Kirtan albums, you may be aware of, I'm in the Kirtan Log series. Uh, yeah, three albums. Uh, you listen to that music. The music, as you hear the sound and the rhythm and the harmonies, uh, it has a certain impression on you. It, has, it changes your emotion. So all experiences in your life has to be filtered by this layer. Okay, Is that logical? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. The second principle I arrived at is that as human beings, we are all motivated to express ourselves in different ways. Self-expression is what we do throughout our life. And this self-expression, uh, <clears throat> in our highest state, we want to contribute to the world, uh, give to the world, and bring up our creativity through various forms of self-expression. So whether it is through the acts of service, as Russell might have done in, in, in his various uh, organizations that he supported and worked with, or whether it might be you know, teaching and having a positive impact on the life of people, as you do now, Harmony, with mm-hmm. your Ashtanga Yoga teaching and practices, uh, or whether it is the podcast series that you use to kind of send messages to a large population by having conversations with interesting people. But it's a piece of music you create, a business, an entity that you do, or an act of service. Whatever it is, these are acts of self-expression. And it, all of those acts of self-expression also has to come from this container, from our body, from our mind. It's through our hands, through our ideas, through our words, through our creativity that we have self-expression. So I arrived at this logical conclusion that if 
somebody can teach us how to put this container into a state of peak performance, how to use all of these assets in a very orchestrated peak performance kind of way. You experience life at a peak state because this whole thing functions very well. Mm -hmm. And you express yourself at a peak state because these instruments work in harmony mm -hmm. and in a peak performance state. And that's really what led me to say, hey, this practices are good uh, in that they are designed to put your inner technology, as I call it, the inner net, into mm -hmm. a state of peak performance, into a state of peak expression, and therefore you live a higher quality of life. And uh, the two corollary conclusions I reached as part of that thinking, uh, Russell and Harmony, was this, that I don't have to invent the methodology. Somebody has figured this out over hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. They've experimented with the body, they've experimented with the mind, and they have left footprints for us. They left the operating manual for us. It's in the form of the Padanjali Yoga Sutras. It is in the form of dietary principles built into Ayurveda. It's in the form of asana practices in various asana schools and lineages. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the operating principles are already there. I just have to pick up and practice. And the other conclusion I reached was nobody can do it for you. You can't hire a person to do it. Somebody <laughs> teach you the methods. They can teach you some of these principles, but you have to get up, unroll the mat, sit on the cushion, decide <laughs> to eat plant-based food and get rid of processed food. Whatever it is that you get out and walk in nature, find that half an hour of quiet moment, uh, turn on that Kirtan music, make those choices on a uh, everyday basis. Mm -hmm. To constantly use these tools to put yourself to state of peak performance. So that is really what led me to saying, how can I apply and integrate this in a more regular, disciplined manner? Mm. And which is what I've been trying to do, and I struggle with it. It's not easy because it takes a tremendous. You know it. You both practitioners. Mm. Some days are better than the others. You mm. when you practice in community, and uh, it is hard. It is hardest when you're injured and you're post-surgery and your knee is in a locked brace and there's pain <laughs> <laughs> and you're walking on, on crutches. Yeah. What, what have you noticed? I mean, you just injured your knee and had surgery a couple of weeks ago. And normally what would your self-care practices be like and how have you had to adjust your perspective to accommodate your recovery? Yeah. So normally my daily self-care practices would involve some component of this, where I'd say, if I want to meditate, I just pull out the cushion. Right. And uh, both at work, where we have meditation rooms, or at home, and easily, without thinking, just sit on the cushion, cross leg, rest my hands on my lap, close my eyes, and go into deep breathing. But right now, I can't sit on the floor cross leg. I have to sit on a chair. And even when I sit on a chair, when your knees in a locked, uh, straight brace, it's not very comfortable and you can sit for five minutes and then some weird sensation takes over the knee and it's a little painful mm -hmm. and it's constantly distracting. Yeah. It's not easy to meditate when you have like a dull ache or shooting pain in your knee or yeah. responsible. So it's very distracting and, and uh, you have to surrender to it and say uh, this is my physicality situation. Also when you are practicing yoga, and I may not be as great as uh, both of you who are extremely qualified Ashtanga yogis are. We'll, we'll, we are say, we'll say we're. <laughs> we, we were retired. Yeah. 
Harmony, I have to say that some of the poses that you do in a, uh, on your uh, <laughs> site, whether it's I watch yeah. photographs of you in Ashtavakrasana or Titibhasana, it's like, yeah, wow. Yeah. This is very old, sir. Very old photos, sir. It's pretty remarkable. And so, but and I have my own practice that even at this point I can do it. Like easily go into a headstand and stay there for three full minutes without fidgeting and go into various variations. And from the headstand, easily navigating my way into Padmasana, the lotus pose, even while standing on the head. All of that is available. And I'm happy and delighted and I don't want to say proud, just humble that I can mm -hmm. hold on to this in my body even yeah. as my body goes through each decade. But now all of that has been taken away from me, right? Yeah. So there's the humility to accept that and a big part of big part of the yoga teaching is that there is impermanence. Mm -hmm. Our bodies are impermanent and never changing. And don't be too attached to it. Mm -hmm. use it for your practice for your path but don't be attached to it and don't ever let your ego be the expression of your relationship with you and your body mm -hmm. uh, you read all of these things in the texts <laughs> but you don't quite fully understand and internalize it till a situation like this hits you and right now I've had to just simply sit there calmly and accept the fact that this body is, has got its limitations, it's changing, it can get injured, it can get broken. Uh, we try our best to then repair it. And the process of repair takes time, it takes patience. It may never get repaired back to the state you were in before you saw all of this happen. And uh, you resist it, you want it to be, you don't want anything to change, you want something to <laughs> stay on forever. That's yeah. not going to be the case. No. And there's eventually, the final process of it at some point, a lot of things are going to deteriorate, disintegrate, that you just may not be able to do the things that you were able to do as a yoga practitioner at 18 and 19 when I started the practice, right? Yeah. Yeah. You have to surrender and accept it. And then there's the final deterioration and that, and the closing of one chapter of your life, <laughs> when life itself ends in the current form. Yeah. Um, so, and it's a chance to reflect on all of that, meditate on all of that, and accept and be humble. The other thing, Harmony, is right now in a state where I'm very dependent on others. I can only walk using crutches. I can't even carry uh, a cup of water mm -hmm. right. on my own. I need somebody to carry it and put it because you can't hold it in your hand. Your hands, your crutches need your hand. So you improvise a little bit. I always carry a sling bag with me. I came out here to this meeting room with a backpack, and this wasn't my backpack, right? You adapt, but you do need a lot of help. And a big part of yoga is actually teaching you about the interdependence with other people. Yeah. And interdependence uh, gives you a sense of union or integration or harmony with others. Mm. We live in a culture where there's a fierce sense of independence. You're encouraged to be fiercely independent. And uh, a situation like this makes you recognize that you may not be that independent. You are interdependent. And it's okay. It's okay to receive that help. It's okay to ask for help. It is okay. And when you are in that situation, when you become aware of that interdependence, you're actually practicing another principle of uh, yoga. 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, loving others, the opportunity to give acts of service. So many, many lessons coming from this particular situation on a daily basis, mm-hmm. fast and furious. Yeah. I wonder if, if that was at all the one of the most shocking things about coming to to the U.S. was that experience of uh, alienation or or that uh, independence is um, is uh, preferred. I, I I feel like one of the hardest things for me traveling abroad has always been that um, that chafing sensation that um, I. I I'm reliant on others and others are relying on me and and I have I I'm used to seeking isolation which is not necessarily healthy but I'm I've been say programmed to uh, I'll say two things in response to that Russell so first is I avoid using the word shocked. You know, you asked me, were you shocked when he came in? And it's like, no, I'm not shocked. I just <laughs> noticed. I just noticed <laughs> that, you know, different groupings of people, different cultures, different regions have different perspectives on how they live life. In some parts of the world, it might be highly community-oriented. That sense of privacy and space might be viewed very differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, know, you might have noticed this you know, traveling in on a train in India as soon as you know, everyone is curious about you. You look different. <laughs> yeah. I'm still looking at you and then you know, every move of yours is observed. Right? You, you know, open a bag to take out something and everyone is looking at like what's in the bag. And, mm. and for you, it might, you know, coming from Canada, it might come as shocking saying you know, it's an intrusion to my privacy. But yeah. it's just different ways by which different societies are organized and think of it in different value systems. So I'm never shocked. I'm just like intrigued by it. And I found it amazing and interesting. I'm curious about it. And it is true that there is... Uh, premium placed on a fierce level of radical self-reliance, as Bernie yeah. would call it. That's uh, fantastic. Radical self-reliance. Radical self-reliance. And wow. Great. And uh, mm-hmm. something to do with moving westwards and the pioneer mentality. And, uh, and, and America's a country where almost everyone came from somewhere. Mm. And, you know, they had to have a sense of adventure to leave their families in uh, uh in Italy or Ireland or Vietnam or, mm-hmm. or India and arrive here in, or South America and make a life of their own. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's definitely a pioneering spirit here. But I'm also acutely aware that no matter how much you claim to have, you are entirely dependent on a vast swath of humanity yeah. that is actually running this very high-functioning society. Mm-hmm. Your life would come to a standstill without but for all of these people. Yeah. Uh, here is an example of that. Uh, and this is where you know, you'd contrast. Um, again, in, in a society like India, at least when I was growing up, you know, if you had to deal with your own trash or if somebody took trash, that was a specific individual you may call. And therefore, that there is 
very visible and you realize you're dependent on someone else to help you with this. And here, it's an automated system that works like clockwork. On Sunday evening, I put out my three trash bins in neatly ordered boxes that say recycled and organic and uh, uh, general trash. And it gets taken away at 4 a.m. in the morning, you know, long before I'm up. Mm. A very, very highly efficient kind of system. And you don't, you've, I've never seen the person who actually does it. Mm. But there's an entire team of people that does waste management in your home and your office. And you're dependent on them. You're dependent okay. on them. And they realize uh, last week, the electricity went down on my entire street here in Redwood Shores, California. And uh, over the course of several weeks, the local utility PG&E was fixing it. And we're talking to some of the neighbors. There were some periods, and it was winter, it's cold, your heating system is down. During the day for a long period of time, there was no uh, electricity available, and therefore the home was not heated. And towards evening, as it was going dark, I was getting ready with candles and other things to light up the house in case it took a while for electricity to come back. It was just one day. And I remember growing up where I had moments like this a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I told some of my neighbors, we don't, I mean, on that day we noticed the pg workers here on the street fixing it and talked to some of them, etc. But how many times in the other 51 weeks did we ever pause to realize that we've had uninterrupted <laughs> electricity piped into our house, not even one second of failure. Mm. And it didn't happen automatically. We think it happens automatically. We think there is some miraculous force that makes it come. But it works only because there is a large organization behind it. There are people who are monitoring it, making sure that the system does not fail. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we will never get to see them and thank them. So in that sense, in a, even in a highly organized society like this, there is a high level of interdependence. Mm-hmm. It may not be that visible. It may not, it may not acknowledge it. Uh, every time I have a meal, I say a prayer at home when I have guests, even at work when I sit with some of my coworkers, if I think they're receptive to it, I'll, I'll, I'll say this prayer. And I usually like the more classical Sanskrit version, mm-hmm. which if you may, I will repeat it right now. It goes, Ramarpanam, Brahmahavihi, Brahmanhau, Brahmanahudam, Ramayvatena Gandhavyam, Brahmakarma Samadhina, Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. And I like saying this prayer because it's, it gives me a moment to pause and acknowledge and even talk to the people around the table that a hundred people were involved in making this single meal happen, if you come mm-hmm. to think about it. If you think of the variety of food that's on your plate, given that we live in a very food abundant society, uh, a well-balanced holistic meal, you know, the kale and the lettuce and the tomatoes and the carrots and the zucchini and the broccoli. Somebody grew it, somebody planted it, fertilized it, irrigated it, harvested it, transported it, packed it, washed it, cut it, cooked it. And if you count all of the people who touched a single meal, a hundred people are involved. Mm-hmm. These people are doing jobs that are harder than what you and I do, in some ways tougher than what you and I want to do. Mm-hmm. You'll never get to see them and say thank you, but we are dependent on them. When I was growing up, I would witness in the small village where my family comes from in southern India and Kerala called Chittalanjeri, 
my grandparents were subsistence marginal farmers. Every single thing we ate was grown around the house by my grandparents. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have refrigerators. Uh, we barely had electricity. So nothing was stored. It was just straight harvested. And my grandmother would go cut things off the bushes or the floods and shrubs and bring it in and cook it. <laughs> and uh, I could look at a plate of food and say, oh, almost every one of these things, my grandparents grew it. They were rice farmers and they also had other crops around the house. A few things here and there they might have bought, but a lot of it they grew. Mm-hmm. I don't have those kids. Mm-hmm. If you tell me how many that people for the next three days, you grow your own food and cook it and eat it, I think I'll die very quickly. Yeah. So I realized how dependent I am. That's why I stopped to say the prayer. Thank you for all the 100 people that I yeah. am nourished. And so if you just think of even a simple thing like a meal, uh, we take it for granted because there's a vast food system here between the supermarkets and restaurants. And we think, oh, just go there, pay some money, it comes. But behind that, there's a whole host of human beings actively at work getting it to you. So it's a roundabout way of answering the question, Russell, where I say, Yes, we can talk of radical self-reliance <laughs> and being fiercely independent, but are we really? Right, yeah, not at all. How well would our lives function without the help, support, energy, and self-expression of these hundreds of people who on a daily basis make sure that we have a high-functioning life? highly socialized society, as it turns out. Um, <laughs> I thought one of the most uh, shocking things that you said, or, or perhaps the most radical things that you said, was um, about your your definition of uh, self-definition around being shocked. And it, it struck me as um, the that the tools of Patanjali are so embedded in you that uh, your first immediate experience of any new stimuli or information is to uh, observe it and not be caught in the ragadavesha of liking and disliking the thing. And it's like, oh, this is intriguing. I'll be interested in it. And it's such a it's such a beautiful instrument in managing pain and suffering, and also, you know, having to contrast those to good times, which might be you know, um, ter- terrible if if um, you have to constantly have bad times, and so uh, it's it was really really lovely to hear that. And I wonder if that was also um, part of your experience here in in, in North America is, is that maybe you encountered people who didn't have these these tools, and maybe you, you wanted to to help them. Yeah, I love the word. I love it that they use the word Ragadvesha. <laughs> and, uh, and most recently, I had to uh, invoke it in a very active way. Uh, like uh, immediately after the surgery, I realized I definitely needed the help of others. So I didn't even stay in my own house. I moved in with some friends and said, mm-hmm. that way I can get 24 hours of care. Nice. Uh, and I was talking to one of my hosts uh, a day and uh, explaining to her part of my strategy there's at the time constant pain you just come out of surgery mm-hmm. and, um, and there's like this dull throb 
uh, acute pain in your knee all the time. And they told her part of this strategy is not to get caught up in the drug of, of the pain. Yeah. And, uh, and by strategy, there was to think of, okay, I have this container called the body and the body has just gone through surgery. There is pain. I experience it. This is undeniable. But I don't need to identify with it. I am not that body. It's just like mm. a temporary thing at a hold and it is going on there and I can detach myself from it. Mm. Uh, sure, the sensation of it is unavoidable, but I don't need to identify with it. I just can observe it a little bit from a distance and that makes it easier. Also recognize the fact that it is temporary. It's a moment in time. It'll pass. Mm. Uh, so going back to the larger question, yeah, as much as possible, I tried to receive all experiences in life that comes to me and be curious and observe and see what is it that I can learn from here? What is it that this experience is teaching me? And, uh, and not quite get completely caught up in it, especially emotionally, as best as possible. Mm -hmm. yeah. You have this beautiful quote Happiness is a multi-million dollar industry catering to our deep desire to live a joyful life and to a belief that as human beings, we deserve to be happy. Uh, however, you believe in reversing that equation and you, to hold that what we truly deserve is to be human. And so what does that, that mean to be human? What does that mean to be authentic? Yeah, it is true that there is happiness. The pursuit of happiness is something that is deeply universal and not just among humans, but actually among all living creatures. You know, every living creature, from the dog to the elephant to the snake to the human, they're all in some way constantly seeking happiness and recoiling from any unpleasantness and unhappiness. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you need a quick fact check on this, all you have to do is to go search on Google for the word happiness and see how many hits you get or <laughs> search on Amazon for happiness and see how many books and uh, yeah. tools and teaching aids and magazines that you'll find related to happiness. So definitely it is and uh, it is even enshrined into the U.S. Constitution right? <laughs> where it's talked of the fundamental human right of the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. But clearly the founding fathers knew something about <laughs> the topic because they only promised the, that you have the right, the freedom for the pursuit of happiness, <laughs> not the capture of happiness. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. No, that's not, yeah. <laughs> exactly. No yeah, guarantee. You will never, yeah. never attain it, and at least you can aspire to it. So. Yeah, you have the right to aspire, sir. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but when I said I want to reverse it, uh, what I realized is that we are humans with the fundamental human experience. And that may not always be this state of sappy happiness as we want to pursue it. It is going to have, it is going to have many, many different dimensions. So therefore it, you know, it is going to have aspects of disappointment and pain associated with it. Uh, but right now, as I mentioned, I'm going through some physical pain post-surgery and it allows you to appreciate this moment of happiness. It allows you to find your way to happiness no matter what is swirling around you. And therefore, that act of human to me, Russell, is really fully embracing 
understanding and loving that human experience in all its totality. And through all of these practices, gaining some level of understanding and navigating our way to uh, peace, happiness, and contentment. Mm. Santosha, it seems undervalued. Correct. Yeah, contentment uh, is so, so very undervalued in a society that is a hustle culture towards achievement. Mm. But being happy with whatever whatever uh, modicum of consciousness we are given, whether it is uh, an ant or um, a Russell Case type figure, you know, <laughs> it's uh, you have to finding contentment in in that most dire of circumstances is, I think, truly um, a gift. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we have to find our way towards it. Mm-hmm. And that's where these practices help. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about your books. I find um, I find them so intriguing because your first one's talking about Lee internet and then the internet right which is like sort of this this machine versus the human <laughs> and then the second one the happy humans about being real in an artificially intelligent world so again like the machine the algorithm versus the human the humanity and the the authentic human experience and i feel like this dichotomy is is coming up more and more especially um as we we are engaged so much more in the online world, in the internet, in even like this conversation that we're having, you know, via technology, um, you know, that we're more socially connected than ever before. We have more information than ever before and yet less knowledge, like we were talking about at the beginning or less um, integration or, or understanding of, of how to, put it together and and even though we're socially connected through all these different ways via the internet that we can have this conversation which is incredible face to face through technology people also are feeling more isolated and more alone and more separate than ever before and i feel like you have such an insight to this dilemma because your books are really like focused on this dilemma that we're facing as in our generation. That's unique to our generation, really. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting question there, Harmony. And I don't see it as a dichotomy. I just, again, think of it as like an interesting point in human evolution, this continued story. Mm-hmm. We are in this amazing point in time, this, cusp in our history and our evolution where incredible amount of technology-enabled capabilities exist in our fingertips. It's highly empowering, and we are fascinated by it. I mean, just think of one simple thing. Right now, much of the planet, more than half the planet, carries in its hand yeah. this supercomputer in its hand, right? Yeah, yeah. It's in your palm of your hands. It's the size of a deck of playing cards. And yeah, our ingenuity, our creativity, collectively, humanity has figured out an astonishing set of things that can be packaged into this little device that fits into my palm of my hands. 
Yeah. It's a remote control to the physical world. I click on it, and in two minutes, I can make a car show up at my door to take me to the airport. <laughs> I click on it, and I can have milk delivered at my door. It's like a magic wand. On the same device, yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, uh, as part of my Kirtan music, the different instruments that I use, one of them is the Tanpura, which if you know uh, the instrument, it's trend. not easy to carry around. It's made of pumpkin gourd and it's very classical, very hard to tune, uh, but creates this amazing drone sound, uh, but not very practical in the modern world. Like if you're traveling musician or something, I've hauled it all the way to Burning Man in a wow. fiberglass case, etc. Okay, I mean, just to give you an example of how creative human beings are with these things that these days, I don't need to carry a whole tanpura if I need to be want to sing and I sing in the pitch of D, I just pull out the same device with which I ordered a car to come to my door. And, uh, oh, it's become my tanpura, right? It's <laughs> incredible. Yeah, this is the level of human creativity. Or I just carry this device and uh, fly to Japan and I meet someone who does not speak English. And now using this, I can have a real-time conversation yeah. going back and forth between English to Japanese. It doesn't even have to be English to Japanese. I could do it from Hindi to Japanese. Right? Yeah. So astonishing amount of all this package into it. So no doubt that we are in a highly empowered state. Mm -hmm. And all of this happened in the last 16 years. Yeah, that's when the iPhone was introduced, right? The first mass adopted smartphone. So in our lifetime, in our memorable adult lifetime, yeah, all of yeah. these things have happened. So that's well and good. And I applaud it. And we're just beginning to see the early stages of what is possible as more innovation will happen around artificial intelligence, around uh, generative AI, around concepts like supercomputing, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But in the midst of all this, something else also needs to be acknowledged, and that is our humanity. And mm -hmm. that is a piece of technology, I call it, because this is a very complex system that may not have changed a whole lot mm -hmm. over centuries. Mm -hmm. And it is important to embrace that human experience as well. And here are a couple of examples of that. If you just look at you know, how humans are born, procreated, raised, you know, there is an essential human experience that is unchanged over uh, millions of years. Mm -hmm. Or I look at something as basic as nourishment. And it doesn't matter how much you innovate around the food industry. What seems to be proven over and over again is that the most fundamental basic nourishment still seems to be the thing that comes off a plant. Yeah, the real food. <laughs> grow in the same way or maybe slightly modified way from hundreds of years, but still has to go through the slow process of mm -hmm. energy from the sun coming and the process of photosynthesis for that lettuce yeah. or the kale or the spinach to actually reach its state of ripeness for it to go into the body and nourish yourself. And you can't. You know, the minute humans get in and mess with that process, it seems to actually take away from the quality of nourishment. So there are a lot of things around the human experience that you also have to 
acknowledge and make sure that they run in parallel. And part of the reason I write these books, so I thought about this is in the quest for the very modern, very sophisticated, we sometimes lose sight of taking care of our fundamental humanity and we do it to our peril. So this is just a reminder saying, go back to the fundamentals. Mm. What do you feel those fundamentals are? Of taking care of of yourself? Yeah, if you could sum it up to sort of like the basic um, necessary things that we should be aware of that we're not um, uh, neglecting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting you asked that question. Sorry, go ahead, Russell. No, you have a whole series of, of poster boards on this issue. <laughs> yeah, I give a talk about this. Uh, and I realized it, it came to head during the pandemic when we all, it all impacted us in different ways. Yeah. Uh, not being able to travel, being able to see our friends completely cooked up in your house. The rhythm of our regular life was uh, affected. Uh, I asked myself, like, what are the set of daily practices that will help me stay connected with all of this? And I came up with this simple uh, model. I'm reaching out for something on my wall. And I said, I came up with a formula and I wanted to make it simple enough to explain to my friends and students. And that was, I said, give yourself medals every day. So this is a medal I got. Mm. When, when did I get this? So when I ran the Golden Gate Marathon, half marathon, number 2008. Nice. Uh, and it was not on crutches and a brace. No. <laughs> <laughs> so give yourself medals every day. But medals to me represents a daily practice of eight things. Uh, how about you, and Russell? Yes. And, uh, actually, yes, I created some poster board because I wanted to be simple enough that you could carry it on a poster board. And <laughs> so it is give yourself medals. And each letter in that word represents one or sometimes two things. That's a daily reminder so that you can practice it every day. Say, did I give myself medals today? So medals stands for, and you'll see where it's going in a minute or so, each letter. Mm. M is for meditation. Mm. So either a formal sitting practice, some people say do 30 minutes a day, 30 minutes in the evening, which is what you do if you go stay in the Shivananda Ashram. Mm-hmm. The community sort of supports its structure. If not, even like a minute or two of creating some kind of spaciousness, but on a daily basis is what I'm uh, talking about. And for meditation. And then uh, E is for exercise. Mm-hmm. And it can be anything. Our body likes movement. And for you, for us, it could be asana practice. And this one, as you can see, uh, uh, Natarajasana. Yeah, striking Natarajasana. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it could be any sort of asana, but it could be just putting on your shoes, going out of your door, walking for 20 minutes and walking back. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be dance, it can be tennis, it can be swimming. So some form in which you move your body. Your body was built for moment, and you can do it even in my current state. Uh, I sort of shoes I, and I grab my crutches and I go out with a friend for safety and walk out 10 minutes and walk slowly but at least I'm walking and moving my body. And there's a set of physical therapy exercises that my PT has told me to do. So that's part of my practice now. And then I creatively sit on a chair and say, what yoga poses can I do sitting on a chair 
uh, and I make up some, but at least some upper body movement, mm-hmm. yeah. activate my respiratory system, etc. So continuing on the metals formula, MED. D, D what could D be? Diet. Yes, of course. Diet, not as in dieting, but nutrition. Yeah, not mm-hmm. dieting, but diet in, mm. as a whole. Focus your attention on what is it that you put into your body in the form of food. Mm-hmm. And it's a very complicated topic. It's a controversial topic. There are so many theories out there. So I simplify it. I tell people, just follow three rules and you can go wrong. First is eat plants, eat food, uh, eat food. As, so eat plants is the main one. Okay. And that means eat things that grew on a plant tree or shrub, not made in a plant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not made in a factory, but it came off a plant. Yeah. As close to its natural state as possible. So you should be able to look at it. You could say a bread came off a plant, but the, there's nothing. The bread did not grow on a plant. It got no, highly processed before it became bread. Whereas you take a, some spinach and even if you saw it, you can look at it and say this is uh, yeah. spinach or this is an eggplant. So as close to its natural state. And then the third rule I say is for beverage as much as possible, make water your primary beverage of choice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, and you can do whatever you want. But if you follow these three simple rules, you can you can only do good for your body. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's my third formula. And then M-E-D-A. A, A must be achievement. Important. No, it's appreciation, of course. Oh, attitude of gratitude. Gratitude. Yeah. Appreciate. Yeah. appreciate all the things that are going in your life. Yeah. You turn on the news, and like you said, how many we have now have access to news from all over the world, streaming and all of the time, and not just news, but opinions. And mm-hmm. everyone has got a strong opinion or something or the other. Uh, and you start reading all of that, your mind can get torn in different directions. But in the midst of all of it, just pause to appreciate the things that are high functioning and working well in your life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, have an attitude of gratitude. So, for mm-hmm. example, you know, a simple thing like right behind your head, how many I see like a little halo and a little light. That's because of the electricity that's being piped into your house. And somebody somewhere is hard at work making sure it is happening, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have an appreciation for the team that has uh, made that happen, which we take it for granted. Or you can just turn on the tap and there's running water, hot and cold coming through. Yeah, amazing. And that's a miracle. Yeah. It because, is. Because a billion people in the world today don't have it. Yeah. yeah. And we have the luxury. So A is for attitude of gratitude. L, the next one, M-E-D-A-L, is, stands for two things. One is for love, especially self-love. Yeah. And the second is L is for learning. So okay. let's take each one. Love, the idea being on a daily basis, just remind you to love yourself and all of your magnificence and your glory and your perfect imperfections and your flaws and all of that. But practice self-love as opposed to self-loathing in a very, very active manner. Yeah, you know, honor yourself. That is love. And the second is uh, learn. The idea being, try to learn something new and complex every day. Much like the body needs movement to sustain itself, the brain needs to be learning mm-hmm. in order to sustain itself, in order to activate itself. So, endless for love, endless for learning. And the final one, S medals. S stands for two things as well. Sleep, sleep, sleep and social. social. Mm. So sleep, ah, yeah. The idea being. We need to rest and renew, and sleep is the powerful tool by which we do it. And we want to have like a pretty active, well thought out sleep architecture and sleep structure. When you go to bed, when you get up, the number of hours you sleep, quality of sleep, depth of sleep, 
it makes me think of like um, a litter of puppies all sleeping together. I think that would be nice. <laughs> Sleep and social. <laughs> yeah. If that is your most comforting, you know, deepest sleep that you can get. Yeah, yeah, that's actually our life at this moment is the four of yeah. us all cuddled together like a bunch <laughs> of puppies. Yeah. Mm. So you start actively thinking about it and managing to it. And if you're not getting the right quality of sleep, then being very aware of it and, and managing your daily life and rhythm around it and how late you stay up and what do you consume after a certain time, what beverages you drink if it's going to interfere with your sleep, etc. And S is also for social. We are social beings. Mm. We paid a price during the pandemic when we were not able to. So the whole idea of uh, S is uh, to constantly or consciously maintain that social connections and that conversation in whatever way you can. Um, so in my current state, I'm not able to move around much. I'm mostly mobile. When I go out, I go to the physical therapist. But I have a fairly defined active strategy to inviting people to come home. Mm. And uh, that's why the phone was ringing as we were talking. These are different people saying, you know, what time can I drop in today and bring some food over? Mm. That's some of them are meant to come and take me out for a walk, etc. So you, you manage that in a very, very conscious and active way. That's so that's nice. Meditation, appreciation, slash attitude of gratitude. Let's go in the right order. He, he is... Uh, and Let's go to the right order. So oh, the yeah. formula, Sir, she I misspelled did. medals, that's all. I did. Well, formula is medals. Okay? Oh, yeah, E. I'll, I'll call out the alphabets. You tell me, otherwise I'll remind you. This is not a, this is not a test, okay? So there's no pass or failure. Okay, E, exercise. M, hold on, M4. Meditation. E4. Exercise. D4. Diet. Diet. A4. Appreciation, attitude, and gratitude. Yeah, L4. Love and learn. and learning. S for sleeping and social. and social. Very nice. <laughs> Got it. See, it's simple. Very now you can take it with you. You can write it on a post-it. <laughs> on a daily basis, you ask yourself, have you built in time for uh, each of these on a consistent and regular basis? I yeah. think this is uh, this is my new success plan. It should be. Yeah, I it's love very it. very nice. <laughs> it actually is my success plan. <laughs> yeah, I just never, I never had the good acronym for it. So thank you. Now I'm going to be able to check it off and give myself medals every day. <laughs> Good. I hope it's of great value to your, uh, yeah. to your listeners. Yeah. I think it's beautiful. I have, I have another question for you. I have a feeling that it will result in a, in you, in you telling us a very uh, hopeful and moderate vision of the future. <laughs> I feel, that's what I feel. I'm going to ask you this question. Um, I read an article uh, recently by Ian Bogust in The Atlantic, and you may have heard of it. Is, is the age of social media, is it ending? And I wanted to know if you'd seen it. Um, it was such an interesting article about um, the problem with social media is that it, it originates in social connection and being social with people maybe you never haven't heard from in so long. Uh, but now it is more about broadcasting rather than connecting. And so it's really social media is social broadcasting, which is maybe, you know, uh, seeking a, a desire for, for likes and attention, which maybe is not as, not as healthy, but perhaps hopefully we're seeing, um, maybe that's the question, you know, is a is an age of universal broadcasting is that dying uh, along with Twitter? And I wonder if <laughs> if that might uh, if that might agree with your perspective, or is that um, 
because in your book you mentioned just you know switching off your your devices as being as being healthy. What's your impression? Yeah, uh, I don't think it's dying. It's evolving. It is morphing. It is changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's true that in early days of social media, it was primarily designed. The early pioneers thought of it as a way of connecting with friends and family. And then it became connected with a whole bunch of other people that you may or may not barely know. Mm-hmm. Then it became a device by which people could, you know, it became a status symbol for how many people follow you, including people you never know, will never meet. Mm-hmm. Then it's gone from beyond that to being, like you said, a complete publishing broadcasting tool where everyone can express themselves freely and uh, creatively, whether it's in the form of videos or little uh, small sentences of text that you use to express yourself. And uh, so it'll continue to shape and emerge. I don't think it'll die. It'll just keep taking on new forms. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a hopeful, moderate vision of the future that I anticipated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the hopeful, moderate part of it comes from this, that eventually we'll figure out systems by which we can handle it in a acceptable, responsible way. Mm-hmm. And the analogy I always draw upon that, Russell, is fire. Fire as this incredible natural force we discovered, human beings discovered it several million years ago. When we first discovered it, we found it a highly useful tool. It could cook our food. It could warm our caves. It could keep predators away. And eventually, we could do other amazing things with it, like smelt steel and blow glass with it. And we've used fires and make our bread. We also realized in the process in the early days that it could be mismanaged and could damage us. If used incorrectly, it could burn our finger. It could burn our house down. Or in some cases, in the hands of the wrong person, it could raise an entire city to ashes. Mm -hmm. Over time, we evolved various systems to manage and contain fire. In our house, we came up with gloves and mittens and tongs to handle fire. We put it inside an oven and encased it so that it's safe. We put it behind a fireplace. Even then, horrible things could happen due to mistakes and systems failing. So we started installing systems like smoke alarms and fire detectors in the house. So that will warn us if something was happening or on fire. Mm-hmm. It was dangerous. Then, despite all that, sometimes things don't go, don't go wrong. So we come up with this idea of 24-hour monitoring in modern-day society in every city. We have teams of people that sit there day and night waiting for a fire to happen somewhere. Yeah. When it happens, you alert them, and within seconds, they respond. And they're highly trained, highly skilled. We have these highly skilled fire protection forces, both in cities as well as in forests, to fight forest fires, etc. Mm-hmm. So we come up with systems, and it evolved it. And as a result, we, when a fire happens and accidents do happen, or sometimes uh, more intentionally, we have a way of fighting it back. We have a way of dealing with it. And I think of all of these things related to information, internet, social media, etc. In that state, we are in early days. We've discovered fire. It's highly useful, but it also can cause harm. And mm-hmm. we are trying to evolve those systems by which we can manage it, contain it. We're having discussions. We're having uh, arguments about it in different mm. uh, 
countries and governments are moving it at different places and trying to tackle and academicians are thinking about it and there's so social commentary around it. I, I'm hopeful that eventually we'll arrive at a system where it is managed and useful and uh, guardrails are put around it in a way that we can uh, we find it just like fire, useful tool and know how to contain it if things don't work out as we as it was intended. Mm. Oh, it, it's really lovely to ask any any question, <laughs> any question you could he think of. He just turns it around for you. It's really he? lovely. I I wanted to say like a, oh, there's always like a positive upbeat answer. Yes, I know. It's like ah, gosh. <laughs> I just want to say I I love your book, The Happy Human. I was very honored that you passed along a copy to me in a in the middle of a of a yoga class somewhere, I think at Stanford. And I was very, very honored. Sharad was teaching. uh, Yeah. Yeah. I was also grateful that you had me, you had a mattress for me in the front row. A (laughs) hundred percent, sir. You're a very honored guest. And so having, having your, having a spot reserved for you is, is um, necessary. That was intimidating. I have to say, uh, uh, Russell, because it is a room full of extreme Lead devoted and highly accomplished Ashtanga practitioners. This is short yeah. for, and while I have some expert to Ashtanga, I wouldn't say that I'm a regular practitioner. Uh, and many of the poses I can do in the primary series, some of them I cannot. And here you are putting me right in front of the class, and that too. <laughs> with the the wisdom of that of that and the insight to that is that being at the front is no gift. Is <laughs> It is the same for us. It's like, oh, yeah. the observation is is very intense, and yeah. uh, you ha- so difficult to find your inner um, your your inner contentment with just exactly. being and not feeling yeah. like you're being flayed alive. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm standing there saying, "Oh my God!" Next comes the Ekapada Hastasana, yeah. and I'm like, oh. I'm going to be there in exactly. Yeah. One microsecond before I topple over. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It was always so sweet. Sonia and her sister Michelle, they always cheat and they would hold each other up. Yeah. It was so nice. It was like, oh, that's the way to do it. <laughs> I want to know one, one thing before we let you go, Gopi. I'm so curious how you got this title, the Chief Evangelist. Thank you for asking. Digital, yeah. digital Transformation and Strategy I, Officer. I don't think they had that section at Wharton. They didn't. Te- <laughs> they didn't describe that position. I'm like, what do you do there? <laughs> how does someone become that? Yeah, I want that job. How do I? How do I become that? <laughs> well, I asked for it. In that, uh, what the role involves is. Google deals with a lot of companies that are Google customers that use Google's marketing services. I work with the thousand largest brands or so think of the big global brands that are yeah, there. Yeah. There are big customers of the company. Yeah. And, uh, I meet with the leaders of those businesses uh, and help them understand how digital is transforming the relationship with their customers and I help them think through the digital transformation of the business that is essentially what it is so if you think of a company that makes apparel or shoes or cars mm-hmm. how their customers their consumers relate to that company or that category is changing very rapidly in the mm-hmm. way they find information about the car in the way they order the shoes in the way they 
evaluate their you know, washing machine or an insurance service. Mm-hmm. All of these companies need to adopt their marketing practices so that they're engaging with the consumers from the time you, Harmony, have an intent saying, I want to book a vacation or I want to buy a pair of shoes, mm-hmm. all the way to then executing on it. And subsequently, when you use the product, you establish a certain relationship with that product, with that company, or that you see the product or service. And uh, every aspect of that is getting changed because of digital technologies, how you use your phone, how you use your computer, how you use video to explore uh, the product usage to solve a problem. So that's really at the core of uh, what I do. I help the leaders of these companies who are customers, large customers in Google, think through their their go-to-market, their relationship with their end consumers and customers. Right. So like how they can best reach their customers based on how we're using our technology. Correct. And change the relationship with their customers. Ah, interesting. So it's more like, so it's more personalized, I'm thinking, and less consumerized. Personalization is one aspect of it. If I were to distill it into what are the kind of things that I talk about, first is to reduce friction so Mm -hmm. that when you have that intent to when you want to actually get that house or insurance or car or apparel, Mm -hmm. with very minimal effort, you should be, that should be fulfilled. You should be able to go through that whole journey. Right. Take friction out of the system. Make it easy for you. Yeah. The second is personalize it. Russell's needs are different from Harmony's needs. So understand each consumer uniquely and have a conversation with them. Yeah. And the third is then to even be ahead of the journey a little bit, anticipate your needs even before you ask for it and uh, be able to fulfill it. So that would be the third dimension. Amazing. You're hired. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. It was such a pleasure to meet you and spend time with you. Very much an honor. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Armani. Thank you, Russell. Thank you for having me. Very much an honor to speak to you and through you to the followers of your podcast. Yeah. And, uh, thank you for the incredible work you're doing in the world. Yeah, I wish we we uh, will put some links to your. Can people find your Kirtan recordings and and get them? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of which, you know the, the the website where all the music is kind of housed. If you want one single link, it's called kirtanlounge.com. Kirtan K A R T A N Lounge. Nectar of Devotion. That's the first uh, album. The Mm. second one is called Precious Jewels. The third one that has just been released is called Mystical Awakening, where one of the tracks is actually based on the Bhagavad Gita, where I chant the Bhagavad Gita set to music. And get this, the Mystical Awakening is currently in the consideration for the Grammy in the World Music New Age chant category. Wow. First round of voting just concluded. So that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Congratulations. Only more recently that this genre of music has been entering the Grammys. And just this year they changed the new age category to call it new age chant and ambient music. So our Mm. music is one of the submissions and entries and it's gone through the voting. Wonderful. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna get online and look it up as soon as we Stop yeah. recording. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm happy to uh, send you links also, but you can find it on Spotify, on uh, Perfect. YouTube, etc. Just search for Kirtan Lounge, okay. Mystical Awakening, and you'll find the entire album there. 
That's Amazing. beautiful. And Amazing. they can also order your books online as well. Correct. Yeah, The Happy Human and The Internet to the Internet are the two books available wherever books are sold. Yeah. Wow. And you're completely color coordinated with your book <laughs> covers. So I think it's amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Harmony. Thank you, Russell. Do you feel like you're taking one step forward and two steps back and you need something consistent? I want to let you in on a little secret. Commitment and consistency are so important for your growth. Otherwise, you'll feel like you're winning for two weeks and then you'll just go back to your old habits pretty quickly. So if you feel like you're running in circles, chasing your tail, or you wanna get back on your mat, you don't know where to start, then I'm here to give you the support you need to help you get your yoga practice back. My Inner Circle membership is open now until the end of December, where you can build your practice, your practice of meditation, chanting, your understanding of yoga, looking at the deeper dimensions of the philosophy and how to apply it to your life. There's opportunity for one-on-one -on -one coaching every single month. And we'll look at how to bring this ancient wisdom tradition into modern life, how to integrate it in a way that the practice is there to serve your life rather than feeling like you have to give up your life in order to do the practice. And so I would just love to invite you in to come into my inner circle. We have uh, self-practice classes every Friday. We have monthly conferences where we look at philosophy, talk about philosophy, and it's open coaching um, where you can ask your questions or bring your obstacles, and we're going to talk through it. We're going to find ways for you to overcome whatever you feel is blocking your progress, even if it's just progress to get up early in the morning. And then we also have a monthly breathwork pranayama class where we also learn some chanting so we can increase our vibration, create more clarity, and just start living a life that's more aligned with your heart's desires. We have a super supportive and active community in both WhatsApp and on Facebook. It's a private Facebook community. And I would just love to invite you in. So if that's something you're interested in, please head over to my website, harmonyslater.com. You can find the details there under yoga classes. And I would just look forward to saying hello, welcoming you into the membership. We have our monthly coaching and philosophy conference coming up at the end of the month on the last Sunday. And we also have our breathwork and chanting class, Pranayama practice, coming up at the first Saturday of the month of December. So if you want to start your new year off right, 2023, it's just around the corner, then come into my inner circle where you can get the support and guidance and start to develop a regular uh, connection with me where you can ask your questions and... Uh, start to really integrate the philosophy into your daily life. Start living your yoga instead of just dreaming about your yoga. <laughs> so find me, harmonyslater.com backslash inner circle membership. And I look forward to seeing you there. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. 
and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in